Then, believe it or not, they showcased a $200 pizza. Do the math. That's like 3,000 bucks worth of pizza covered in truffles and gold foil. I kid you not. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if I'm looking at 3,000 of my own rands, I'm not spending it on a pizza. But here's the thing. Oddly enough, there's a market for $200 pizzas. Because for some people, they're saying it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, we do this all day, evaluating what are we doing with our time and our energy. And so for some of us, we've had a hard day at the middle of the week, and we go and we have a rough night's sleep. We wake up the next morning, and we are so dead tired. But what do we do? Man, everything in us wants to stay in bed and sleep, but you brush your teeth, you have your coffee, you go to the gym, whatever your morning routine is, and you go back to work, even though it might be the last place you want to be. And so why do we inconvenience ourselves like that? Because we know when we sum it all up, it is worth it. It's called a job. I get paid at the end of the month for that. And so therefore, it is worth it. Now, some of you don't only get up early during the week, you get up early on a Saturday morning too. And you put on some running shoes and you get on the road and you run 5, 10, 15 Ks, not because anybody's chasing you, not because you're in trouble, not because there's a dog, but because you choose to. Now, for some of you, you're saying when you weigh up your Saturday morning, it's not worth it. But for those of you who are running, you're saying, no, it is worth it. When I look at what it does for my, my mental and my physical and my emotional health, man, oh man, I'm going to be running every single weekend. Then we all have those little hobbies and those little passions where for you, you are willing to pay that extra bit of money for that one thing, right? And all of your friends and family think it's crazy. Why don't you just go for the cheaper option? But for you, for your hobby, for the thing that excites you, it is worth it. Now, I want to remind you that we are looking at the book of Hebrews and the author of the Hebrews is writing to Christians who came out of Judaism. And Judaism for them was a safer place to be because as they became Christians, they started experiencing opposition. They started experiencing difficulty and persecution. We know from chapter 10, they were being thrown into prison. And so they started inherently asking this question, is it worth it? Now, before we judge them, I believe we're doing the same thing all the time. It is getting increasingly difficult to be a Christian in today's culture. Increasingly, we are needing to say no to more and more things around us in order to say yes to the things of Christ. Increasingly, people are thinking that what we believe is strange and fairy tales. Increasingly, we are experiencing, maybe not in our country, physical persecution, but increasingly, there's hostility towards our faith. And then when it comes to your time, when you're faced with, am I going to read the Bible or am I going to stay in bed? Am I going to pray or am I going to watch Netflix? Am I going to gather with God's people or am I going to stay in bed? Am I going to go and gather in someone's home and have fellowship and community? Or am I rather going to go to bed early tonight? We are at every point asking, is it worth it? Is it worth it? So hold on to that thought because we're going to look at today's passage and circle right back and hopefully Man, oh man, we can all say a very loud and resounding yes. 
So let's read Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 1. Therefore, there's our big therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now you should be able to say this with me by this stage. Whenever you see a therefore in the text, you need to ask what the therefore is. Therefore, all right, so this is Hebrews 12 verses 1. This is the hinge point. The therefore is pointing backwards to chapter 11, and in this case, the whole of chapter 11. If you've been in church for any period of time, you would know chapter 11 is the heroes of our faith. And so the writer of the Hebrews is writing to these Christians saying, listen, you want to know what faith looks like? You want to know what perseverance looks like? You want to look at those lives who have run the race well, yes, who have experienced opposition and difficulty and some of whom even lost their lives for the sake of faith. I'm going to give you some names to look at. And so Hebrews chapter 11 is looking at men and women of faith who despite difficulty, who despite culture, were able to move the ball forward in their generation out of their faith and their obedience to God. Now, as I say to you, who are your heroes of faith? Maybe for some of you, there are some names that come out of the Bible. Maybe there is an Old Testament figure that for whatever reason, you just resound with. Man, when you're struggling and you hear stories of David or of Moses or of Elijah, man, your faith's fire is kindled. Maybe it's a New Testament figure. Peter, because he always has his foot in his mouth. And you can like, I'm like Peter. Or maybe you look at Paul because, man, he's just going aggressively into the kingdom, planting churches, whatever it may be. It's a biblical figure. And maybe as I say, who is in your heroes of faith, wall of fame? Maybe you've got other figures. Maybe right now you're picturing your father or your grandfather or your grandmother. Maybe you're picturing a person like a mentor, whether it's someone you know personally or someone that has, just due to the course of their ministry, has become someone who has shaped your faith. Maybe it is someone who's no longer with you, someone from a previous generation, and you know your life and the faith of your family is different because of someone who went before you. Or maybe the person that comes to mind is someone who comes out of the history books, It could be William Wilberforce or Martin Luther or John Wesley. But when you look at their lives, you see that they too, like you, experienced difficulty and yet they carried on running the race. And as you look at their lives, your faith is encouraged and inspired. And that's what today is about. And so this verse says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us... Let us, this is going to move into action. We don't just sit and sit in awe of these people who went before us. The goal of bringing all of this into mind is to inspire our race. Because here's why this is so important. While many of these people that come to your mind are no longer in the race, they have won the race and completed the race, you and I are still in the race. And the metaphor I'm going to come back to time and time today is not a sprint but it is a long race, a marathon, the comrades marathon. And maybe right now as you are running the race of faith, I don't know how you would describe that, but I'm betting to extend this metaphor, many of you are feeling the blisters in your toes and you're feeling your quads cramping 
You're feeling dehydrated. You're looking around you, you've seen others who have fallen on the road. You are feeling demotivated. You're looking at the finish line, which looks so far away that it's just never gonna be within your reach. Maybe everything within you wants to just lie down and stop running the race of faith. Now, maybe that's not all of you. Maybe some of you are just experiencing so much goodness and grace, or maybe you are in difficulty, but you just know that God is with you and so you're running strong. The time will come though for you too when that moment comes, when the race is hard. Here's one of the reasons why I like the Comrades Marathon. Never run it and never will, all right? You can quote me on that. But not only do thousands of people rock up to run the Comrades, but thousands of people rock up to encourage the runners. And so there's almost 100 kilometers of track to run and every kilometer, there are hundreds and thousands of people high-fiving you, telling you you can do this, giving you water, giving you a smile, urging you forward. Now, I want you to imagine, and I've really got to imagine hard here. Maybe you do as well, but you're halfway through the race, and you're at the point where you are ready to give up, and these people who you don't know, these faces are no longer encouraging you. I want you to imagine you're running and you're about to stop and you look up and you see a familiar face, it's Bruce Bordice. Now for those of you who don't know, he won nine comrades marathons. And there's something just about seeing him. And maybe some of the memories of seeing him cramp up and carry on running. And some of the perseverance and strength and resilience that he displayed. Suddenly something in you grows and you can carry on going. But 10 days later, you were 20 to go, but you just know there's nothing left in you to carry your own. So you look up into these faces, and again, they no longer encourage you. You see another familiar face, and it's Wally Haywood. Again, for those of you who don't know, Wally Haywood ran his final comrades at the age of 79 years old. And so you're like, listen, if that I could run at 79, I'm 29, 39, even 49. I believe I can do that. And can you see the point of all of this? It's when we look at this cloud of witnesses, be they from the history books or from the scriptures or from our lives and our interactions, when we see how they ran, how they persevered, how they refused to let go of God and refused to let the flame of faith go down in them, that encourages you and helps you carry on going, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, here's the actions, let us throw off everything, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I used this illustration quite recently, a few weeks or months ago, but I think it is so poignant for this that I can't let it go. Some of you runners on Saturday morning like to go to the park run. And for some of you, the main reason is just to kind of have a half excuse to be getting fit, but it's actually more about the friends, it's more about the breakfast afterwards, it's more about running the dog. And if your goal is just to rock up, 
then you can bring whatever you want along the way. You can bring your cooler box because you're not running, you're walking. You can bring the four dogs because it doesn't matter if they slow you down. You can rock up in a bunny suit if that is what you want to do because all you are doing in your mind is rocking up. But I know some of you, you are there to run. You're there to race. You are there to compete. And some of you are there to win. And so no, you're not bringing the cooler box. You're not bringing the extra drinks. You are saying no to every gram of clothing that is going to slow you down. You are saying no to the donuts and the white bread during the week because you know it's going to slow you down. And you throw off everything that hinders you and everything that entangles your race so that you can win and you can run and you can compete. And so when it comes to our race of faith, here's the big question for today. And if you have your phones or tablets or journals here, I want you to have them open. And as we just carry on going down this question to write down what comes to mind, take notice of what the Lord surfaces in your imagination. Here's the big question. What is hindering your race of faith? What is hindering your race of faith? Some of these things, maybe many, maybe most, maybe all of these things that are hindering a race of faith are going to fall into the category of sin. And it talks about the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. As I was thinking about this idea of sin entangling us as we are running, made me think of those pranks we used to play in primary school. With someone sitting down at the desk and someone lies underneath them, ties their shoelaces together or cables them together and they don't know what's going on. They try to get up and what do they do? They fall down on their faces. And, and that's what sin does to us in our race. It stops us dead in our tracks. But not only does it do that, it says here, it is the sin that so easily entangles. This is not something that every now and again catches you unawares. This is something that is looking for every moment and every opportunity to stop you on your race. As I was thinking about sin entangling us so easily, I thought of this quote by Timothy Keller, who says, sin is always sweet in the mouth and poisonously bitter in the stomach. So someone irritates you. And you can just feel your temper rising. And what do you do? Oh, you let them have it. And it feels so good, right? It's sweet in the mouth. And then you see what it does to your relationship and it's bitter in the stomach. Or you click on that website and for a few moments it feels so good. And then your conscience kicks in. You see what it's doing to your marriage and your relationships and your kids. It's bitter in the stomach. Or in a moment of greed, a moment of lacking wisdom, you spend a whole lot of money on that thing that you know is a waste of money. For a moment, all the endorphins are pumping through your brain. And then you realize the greed growing in your heart. You realize what it's doing to you and what this is going to cost you in real time. And it's bitter in the stomach. This is why I think C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are these four children who are on a mission. They're on a mission to turn back winter. 
winter being controlled by the white witch, but they together with Aslan, a picture of Christ, are going to turn back winter. That is their mission. But the white witch gets hold of Edmund. And the way she tempts Edmund into her clutches is with Turkish delight. Now, if ever you want to tempt me into your clutches, it ain't going to be Turkish delight. It's going to be a ribeye cooked medium rare. However, the, the, the Brits probably love their Turkish delight. Anyway, she gets Edmund in. And it's so sweet in the mouth. Now what, he's just totally forgotten about the race. He's totally forgotten about the mission. He doesn't realize he's going further and further into the clutches of the white witch. And then as he's eating, he's so distracted. She starts asking him questions and unbeknown to him, he starts giving up just where all of their peers are and all of the people who are on the good team. What tasted so good, unbeknown to him at the time, Prove to hinder his race and entangle him. So back to your question. What is hindering your race of faith? And maybe right now, as God brings to mind some of the sin in your life, if you're honest with yourself, you're in the phase at the beginning with Edmund and the White Witch where it's still tasting good. You haven't experienced the bitterness in your stomach. You haven't seen or experienced the consequences yet. Or even if you have to some degree, the, the, the goodness of how it tastes at the moment is still greater than the consequences you're experiencing. So you're saying, listen, I'm quite happy to carry on eating my Turkish delights. And what God wants to do is point us back to the race. Point us back to the reason we exist. Point us back to the mission. Point us to those who have faced temptation as you have, but who have run well and who have overcome. And for God to grow that vision in our minds and in our hearts. And so we look at the Turkish delight and the sin in our lives and we look at the race and we are prepared to throw off everything that hinders and so easily entangles. I thoroughly believe that one of the reasons why when we look at our sin, to stick with the metaphor of the Turkish delight, we're looking at our sin and we're looking at the race that we often go back to our sin and we stay there is an inadequate view of freedom. What I mean by that is sin in biblical definition is slavery, but man, oh man, is so good. We look at the race, which we know is hard. Running a race is hard, even if you're fit and you're like, no, 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 I'm going to stay with my sin. And I think there are two main caricatures of freedom that take our eyes off the true biblical vision of freedom that God wants for us. And the first is a worldly freedom. See, the worldly definition of freedom is do whatever you want. Freedom is throwing off all boundaries and do whatever comes into your mind, be whoever and whatever you want. And so using the metaphor of the race, the worldly definition of freedom isn't run the race. The worldly definition of freedom is have a nap, run sideways, run backwards, run like a clown, do whatever you want. Whereas the biblical idea of freedom is there is a race. And running outside of the race is going to damage you. It's going to damage others. 
But there's a race to run. And so the biblical idea of freedom is the ability to run, the ability to compete, and the ability to move our faith forwards. Now, in case you're not convinced and you're still looking at the Turkish delights, here's a little thought experiment. And even if you're listening to this and you're not particularly religious, I'm pretty sure this will make sense to you too. Imagine somehow, now this is pure fiction, God will never do this, but imagine Jesus rocks up and he says, guys, you've got 24 hours to do whatever you want, green light. I'm not going to hold you to it. As you think about that, what are the first things that start coming to your mind? If you got freedom to do whatever you wanted, are the first things that come up to your mind, oh, I'm going to spend more time reading the Bible. I'm going to go and serve the poor. No. I guarantee you that by tonight, most of you will be dead or in prison. Right? Because the worldly definition of freedom always, always leads to further slavery. Every single time. And then there's the religious. This is another character. This is a religious view of freedom. Where you're eating your Turkish delight. I've said this a few times that Craig Rochelle says, if you're not sinning, if you're sinning and it doesn't feel good, then you're doing it wrong. Sin feels good. The Turkish delight tastes good. Man, it's good on the tongue, right? And then you look at other people who would claim some form of religious freedom and you look at their lives and you look like those guys are one step away from death. They look so bored. They look in so internally lifeless. Are you telling me I must give up this for that? Is it worth it? And you're going to look right back to your Turkish delight and say, listen, I think I'm happier over here. Now I'm sure there are some people in our lives who we've seen and we've looked at their so-called religious freedom and we've said, listen, I don't want any of that. That's not a real view of freedom. Again, the real view of freedom is that the things that hold us back are removed and I'm able to run and I'm able to compete. And so if those are false views of freedom that sometimes prevent us from dealing adequately with the sin in our lives, I want to take a shot at changing your view of freedom. See, I've got two boys, eight and 10 years old. And here's what I want as a dad. That in five years' time, they're sitting in youth ministry. Or in 10 years' time, they're sitting in church somewhere. Maybe 30 years' time, 40 years' time, I might not even be with us anymore. And some pastor stands up and says, guys, open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Boys, who comes to mind when you think about those who have run well? Those who have overcome difficulty. Those who have fallen but have gotten up again. Everything in me, and I know everything in my wife, says the first faces that must come to their minds are me and her. You see, sin is never private. I don't care what the sin is. It is never private. It always impacts the people around us. It always hinders those around us. But in the same way, Freedom is never private. When I'm able to run, when I'm able to persevere in my race, it's not only about I get to get to go to heaven, 
No, it impacts the faith of the people around me. It impacts the faith of my family. It impacts the faith of the next generation. And that is freedom. And that is why God wants us to run hard after Him. So it says, so let us throw off. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run. Notice the activity in this words. Some of you, when you get up in the morning, putting your work clothes on, it's like, oh, if I have to. No, 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 this is decisive. Throw it off. Today, look at these people who have run and make a decision. Stop it now. Put the Turkish delights down and throw it off. And by God's grace, start not walking, trotting, having a nap. No, run, run, run. I know sometimes what happens is we look at this cloud of people in our lives and we've been disappointed. And you've been disappointed by people of faith. And I've been disappointed by people of faith. And sometimes we use that as an excuse not to run. I'm hoping with everything in me that there's still someone or some people in your life that if you had to really think about it, they have ran well, they have persevered. So be encouraged by them. But as we're going to see in the next verse, while we are to be encouraged by this cloud of witnesses, they are not to take our eyes off the main point of our focus. And that is the one face that will never let us down. And so it says in verse 2, so let us fix our eyes on Jesus. I love the cloud of witnesses. I feel the encouragements. But I don't fix my eyes on them. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. When you see the word author, don't so much picture someone sitting in their study writing something. What does an author do? A whole story, a whole the world originates with them. Our faith starts with Jesus. He's the author of our faith. He's the original, originator of our faith. He's the pioneer of our faith. He is the one who blazes a trail forward for us, a trail within which we can run. And not only does he run the race, he finishes the race. He completes the race. He wins the race. And he is elevated to the right hand of the Father. So when I say, fix your eyes on Jesus, what I'm hoping we're not doing if you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember this. Please, please, please don't picture your favorite postcard of Jesus. Especially blonde Jesus with facial oils Jesus and Jesus who never has dirt under his fingernails Jesus. Don't even picture Middle Eastern Jesus. It's not about picturing a portrait of Jesus. Look what this verse says. Therefore, fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who started the race, the one who completed the race of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Meaning, there is no opposition you have experienced that he hasn't. There is no difficulty you have experienced that he hasn't overcome. He was not defeated by the things that threatened to defeat you. And so let's just fix our eyes on him because he won, he overcame. And he sat down in victory as he rose from the dead. Consider him, think about him. Don't just, oh Jesus, no, consider him. 
Spend time thinking about Him, dwelling on Him. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men as we do so that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we consider Him, we are literally considering His full life, death, and resurrection. We are considering His life. We are considering what He did on the cross and what was accomplished on the cross. We are considering the impact of His victory in resurrection. And the more I dwell on that and fix my eyes on Him, the more I am going to be empowered to run. And He did this. He did this so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your race of faith. Now I want to come back to something here. It says this. Who for the joy set before Him. Now again, we're not picturing Jesus with postcard with a happy face and rosy cheeks. We're looking at the Jesus who lived and suffered and died and rose again. Why does it say who for the joy set before him? I've never seen my kids fall off their bikes and graze their shins and get up. Yay, that was fun. I've never seen people endure opposition and count that joy. So why would Jesus endure challenge after challenge in his life and opposition and betrayal? Why would he enjoy the physical and spiritual and emotional suffering he did on the cross? And why would he count this joy? Do you know what the answer is? Because for him, it was worth it. It was worth it. Now let me just debunk some silly pictures we have of the joy of Christ as he was suffering. Jesus wasn't in the garden going, I can't wait to get crucified. Jesus wasn't being executed by these Roman prisoners, uh, executioners, giving them high fives, right? Jesus knew what was coming and he even prayed, Lord, take this cup away from me. I can tell you now, yes, we understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But because he was also fully man, those nails felt to him exactly the same way they would feel to you. The betrayal he experienced feels exactly the way it feels to you. When his father turned his face from him, listen guys, we experience imperfect love this side of earth and when people betray us, it hurts. Jesus, for all of eternity past, experienced undiluted perfect love and then that was taken away. He suffered. He truly, truly suffered and yet it says here, for the joy set before him. You see, he knew what it was accomplishing. And one of the things he knew it was accomplishing was he was clearing a path to God for you and for me. He was the author of our faith. He ran the race with perseverance. He was the perfecter of our faith so that he blazed the trail for you and I to run so that we can have access to God. And for Jesus, it's worth it. Our salvation, your salvation is worth it. It says again here, in case we didn't get it, that he did this so that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. In your race right now, part of why Jesus did what he did was so that you would have courage to carry on running. That you would have courage 
to look at the things that are hindering your race of faith, to throw them off. That you'd have courage to look at the sin that maybe even right now is tasting good or maybe you're starting to experience the bitterness of it. That you'd deal with it and throw it off so that you can experience true freedom as you run. For Jesus, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. And so, I kind of open up with this. I want to ask you again, what's the race like for you right now? If you are to give a, a two-minute response, sorry, a two-sentence response, just whether you write it down, whether you just process it in your mind, whether you pray it out to God without trying to sound holier than anything else, just what's it like for you right now? Where's it hurting How much motivation do you have left within you? How much have you seen those fall around you and you've gone, man, if they're falling, what chance do I have? And so I'm going to ask you to take some time. If you've got your journals out, write down those names in the cloud of witnesses around your life. Write them down. Thank God for them. Let them be a witness of perseverance. Maybe think through some of the trials that they experienced, some of what they overcame in the name of faith. Let that be encouragement to you. But I also want to ask you that as much as we're encouraged by these people and we can carry on doing this in our life groups or at home in our devotions, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so as we fix our eyes on Jesus, I showed earlier that for Jesus, he was willing to run his particular race with all of the suffering that that included because for him, it was worth it. Right at the beginning of the message, I showed you that the writer to the Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are starting to wonder if it is worth it. And what I'm hoping you're seeing is week after week as we look at these powerful therefore statements that God is saying to them and He's saying to you every single page, every single sermon, every single turn, yes, it is worth it. But let me just clarify, it is not worth it necessarily because if you come to faith, your life is going to be easy. He's not saying it's worth it because suddenly you've got some magic genie in your life that's going to make everything go wonderful. He's not saying it's worth it because church is worth it. He's not even saying it's worth it because you get heaven. He's saying it's worth it because you get Jesus. It's always about Jesus. He is the reward. He is the goal. He is the prize. And every good thing he gets is a result of getting Jesus. The giver. Not necessarily his gifts. So I'm going to ask Sam if you would come up. And as we start wrapping up, maybe you're still writing down some of those names. Maybe you're still just taking a long, hard look at the race you're running and you've never put into words just how difficult it is right now. Maybe you've just been given freedom to be honest with God for a second. And so I wonder for how many of you, you are at that point 
where you kind of, today was your last shots, man, you're about to literally give it up. And I'm praying that as you look at the cloud of witnesses around you, that something new is birthed in your heart. I'm praying that as you look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he endured such opposition from sinful men so that you carry on running. That some of the Holy Spirit is breathing new life and new energy and new vision in you. Maybe if you're honest, you've been looking at the sin in your life and you're even too afraid to write it down because you know by writing it down, you're taking an action that's going to move you back to God and you don't want to let it go. Maybe it's still tasting good to you. Why don't you just have the courage to name that sin? Maybe you've had a false view of freedom. And what you really want is not the freedom to run a race. What you really want is the freedom to do whatever you want. But you've begun to realize that that ain't freedom. Or maybe you've looked at stodgy, dead religiosity and you've said, hey, listen, if it's my sin or that, I'm going to take my sin every time. But something in you has opened your mind to see a greater vision of freedom. Maybe some of you, your parents or your grandparents, and suddenly you've realized, man, oh man, I don't know if my face is going to feature in my kids' minds as they are asked to think about a cloud of witnesses. And man, oh man, from today onwards, I'm going to change that narrative. Maybe you don't have kids, but you're thinking about your family. You're thinking about the people that are in your circle of influence. And you're like, man, oh man, if, if I can be an encouragement to somebody else by the way I run my race with perseverance, today things change. I've just thrown out a whole lot of ways that God might be speaking to you. And there's a whole lot of ways that I haven't even brought to mind. But as a sign of faith and as a sign of response, if God has put His finger on something in your life today, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Just saying, God, I'm listening. God, I'm hearing you. I don't even know what the next step is, what it means. But I'm just recognizing your voice in my life and I want things to change. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for speaking faithfully through your word. Thank you that your word never returns void. Thank you that your vision for our lives is freedom. And freedom not only for us, but freedom for others. Thank you, Lord. And so, Father, we're just going to take a second to listen to the whisper of your voice. What is our next step? As you've highlighted something in us, what is it you're calling to do? What is it you're calling us to throw off? What is it that's entangling us? How am I going to engage some people around me? How am I going to fix my eyes on Jesus and make sure that He is the first face I see every single morning? Just allow God to take your mind to what He wants for you. Thank you for speaking, God. Thank you for your spirit of life. And so, Lord, as we're still just spending time on holy ground, would you continue to speak? 
would we experience the gentle but clear convicting voice of God. May we also experience the invitation to freedom. Would you allow us to see the vision of freedom that you have for us? Holy Spirit, cement that in our hearts. And as we throw things off and as we begin to run, empower us, God. We mysteriously run with you, with the one who has run and the one who has completed the race. So God, may we feel that vibrancy of life within us as we take some actions of faith today. We pray this, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. May you experience his continued voice in your life this week. And for those of you who need a strong coffee after today's message, uh, just out those doors, you'll find there. Guys, just remember, as far as possible, social distancing. And for anyone who would like further prayer or ministry on anything that came up today, please make your way to the front and we'd love to pray with you. God bless you guys.